Well, good evening. Welcome back to our series on politics. Let me say a prayer for us and we'll dive in. I'm, I'm really excited about, we're gonna kind of take a little bit of a turn in the series and this is, this is one of my favorite things to talk about tonight. So let me pray for us and we'll start. Lord, thank you for the freedom and the privileges that we have to gather. Father, we know that is not true for believers throughout the world and we pray for them, that you would strengthen them, that you would be with them. We pray, Lord, not that they would be safe, but that they would be faithful. May your name be praised in all the earth, in Christ's name, amen. Well, as we always do, uh, this is number to text your questions to. So feel free to text questions. Sometimes I think I go pretty fast. By the time your questions get to you, it's like, oh, class is over. Uh, and that's my strategy, I'll just be honest with you. That, that's exactly what we're trying to do here. So what are we talking about? We're talking about, in this big series, The Bible Speaks, we wanna talk about biblically informed ways of looking at different topics in the world. And so this topic is politics, and I, I'm thinking about politics in a broader sense than just government. Politics, in, in its original sense, is how a polis, it's a Greek word polis, which we translate city, but it's really a group of people living in the same place. It could be a village, could be a city. Bottom line is, when you get a group of people together, there needs to be some kind of structure, some kinds of ways of mediating disputes, some kinds of ways to delegate authority. In other words, you have to have some organization, if you will, a financial organization we call an economy and a rules-based organization we call a government. And so these are just ways of organizing our interactions with one another. It's a natural thing, it's a God-ordained thing. And so I wanna think about politics in the sense of how we live together. And then we'll get specific sometimes and talk about specific governments, usually the government in our nation. Well, let's summarize where we have been so far. So here are some takeaways from some things we've talked about looking each week at a biblical text and pulling out some key ideas. The first is Jesus was playing a different game and so are we and so is the church. There are actually a lot of games being played and I use the word game because I use that analogy. I don't use it meaning it's not what's happening in the world is not important. What I mean is, is there are people who have certain goals and are pursuing them according to a certain set of rules. And I just use the metaphor of a game. Several people playing and moving pieces on a game board, but not everybody's doing the same thing. And that's a little confusing. And that's the way Jesus was. He came into a world where everybody's playing the power and oppression and coercion and get what you can get game. And Jesus was moving the same pieces and dealing the same cards and living the same life, just like you and I are. But he had a very different goal and he wasn't playing the game they were playing, even though he was moving the same pieces. The second is Jesus had a different goal. He was actually, he was here for a very different purpose. And that just jumps out of the gospels. I mean, Jesus had a radically different purpose. I would commend to you a really careful study of in the latter part of John, the Gospel of John, where Jesus is having a discussion with Pontius Pilate. That discussion so brilliantly illustrates the fact that, Pont you know, this is the one where Pontius Pilate ends up, Jesus says, I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everybody on the side of truth listens to me. And Pontius Pilate says, what's truth? That little dialogue is an, a great example of people living in the same world, playing with the same game pieces, but completely going after different goals. So Jesus played a different game, different goals. One of the things we realized was that our mission, in other words, what God told us to do, is not reliant on any government, any particular kind of government, any particular governmental leader, now we understand that governments have an impact on us as individuals, but if you look at history, and we're gonna look at a little bit here in a minute, various kinds of governments, good ones, bad ones, so-so ones, awful ones, never stop the church from growing. And we made, I made the point to you that the church is growing faster in China and North Korea today than it is in America, in terms of percentage, not in terms of size. And obviously the biggest 
there are more Christians in the Southern Hemisphere than there are in the Northern Hemisphere now. In other words, the places you're growing doesn't seem to be and isn't correlated with what kind of government you have. So our mission is not reliant on a government. Secondly, our mission is not coercive, it's transformative. Governments operate through coercion, and that's not necessarily a bad statement. I mean, it, if you just stop and think about it for a minute, governments only work because they have authority to coerce you. Otherwise, you would have chaos and anarchy. Uh, okay, I was about to make a snide comment <laughs> about the free state. Now, never mind, I'm not even going there, not going there. But you have anarchy if there's no coercive power. Now that can be abused, but it can be a very good thing. We all like for criminals to be caught and, and go to jail. I mean, that's good for society. Nevertheless, governments use coercive power. God has all the power in the universe. Jesus Christ was able to do miraculous things, and yet the gospel is not coercive, it's transformative. And so God has a desire to transform this world, but in a specific way. He is, his kingdom is invading this world to redeem his creation, to redeem you and me, and to bring us back from death to life. But to do that, instead of coming in and saying, I've got an army and we're gonna do this, it's transformative, it's not coercive. The gospel, nobody becomes a Christian by coercion. It, just, it isn't possible. Have people tried? Of course people have tried. Witness the Crusades back in the 10th and 11th, actually 11th and 12th centuries AD. But my point is no one can actually become a Christian through coercion. And so the gospel is transformative. And then finally, we as Christians, all these things are true of us. We, our lives are subversive, whether you want it to be or not. And I use the word subversive in this sense. It's not revolutionary as in overwhelming. This is not the Bolshevik Revolution in the early 20th century. This is not uh, in Russia. This is not something that says we're gonna overthrow the government peacefully or by violence. This is undermining. And when I say undermining, I don't mean with malice. I simply mean we are going to live differently in the world and the more Christians there are, the more different the world will be. It's an undermining force rather than an overwhelming force. It's, we do not need the reins of power, wherever that may be. We do not need to be the supreme ruler of North Korea for North Korea to have more Christians in it. We do not need to be president of the United States for the United States to have more Christians. You see my point is that we are undermining rather than overwhelming. It is not a top-down deal with Christianity. And that's the way God designed it. And as you look at the Gospels, you look at the book of Acts, and you realize, wow, there is power in the Gospel. And so that's kind of where we have been. So I talked a little bit about being political but not being partisan. And we are political, meaning we live in the community of people, we buy into the rules of the community insofar as we are able to in clear conscience. The scriptures talk about be good citizens, uh, obey the laws. And the interesting thing about that is whether I agree with it or not. Now I wouldn't obey an unjust law, we wouldn't obey a law that God says is evil, but uh, here's a great one. Anybody ever been at a stop sign late at night, nobody coming, for miles anywhere, how many of you say, Soop, right on through? Wait, not me either. Yeah, I didn't, me either. But bottom line is, my point is, you obey a lot of rules that don't make sense to you. And right now, there are a lot of very divisive rules around masks and vaccines and that sort of thing that don't make sense. One of the difficulties in our society right now, in a, in a hyper-individualistic society, is, is I will obey rules that make sense to me. And Christians, however, our default position is to be a good citizen and barring any, any reason of injustice or harm or anything that goes against God's word to pay our taxes and follow uh, rules. And so that's our default position. So we are political, but we're not partisan. Partisan means P 
picking a side. Let me give you a great example of this. Tony Evans, I'm gonna paraphrase uh, the preacher Tony Evans. He was talking about something else, but this so applies to our situation. You come into our, our country right now and people wanna know when, when you become, when you get involved in political debate, people wanna know, are you a Democrat or are you a Republican? Or maybe any one of the other fringe parties, but that's really the basic. They wanna know, are you a Democrat or are you a Republican? Which side are you on? And here's Jesus' basic approach to that. Jesus didn't come into the world to take sides. He came into the world to take over. And I want you to think that way. You're not actually here to take sides. If you were gonna take a side, you know which side you're on? For this reason I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. So says Jesus. If you have a side, it's the side of truth. And truth is what God says. And so, that's your side. Actually, you're here to take over. You're not here to be a Democrat. You're not here to be a Republican. You may agree with some things. You may vote certain ways. I'm not saying you're not gonna live life. I'm simply saying, if I said to you, well, which side are you on? You go, we're here to take over. We're here with the kingdom of God and it is going to triumph in this world. That was Jesus' point. What was Jesus preaching, by the way? When Jesus began to preach, I don't know if you ever thought about this, but as Jesus began to preach, turned 30 years old, goes out, starts preaching, what was he saying? Be good people, love your neighbor. Not really. I mean, he did teach some of those things, but what was he teaching? Repent, because the kingdom of God is here. That's the fundamental message of the gospel is God has come to reclaim his people, to redeem his people, and he's even willing for his son to die for that to happen. That's the gospel. It's subversive, and it's going to take over. So let's go a little different direction. I wanna talk now about a story from history that kind of illustrates this. It's a biblical story. I've told you the story of the early church uh, basically persecuted from its inception uh, till about 313 AD. I mean, hundreds of thousands of Christians murdered. I mean, just unbelievable by our standards over that time period. And then the Roman Empire becomes a Christian empire. I mean, wow, how, nobody saw that coming. It was transformative, it was subversive, and yet it happened. Well, I wanna tell you another story out of the Old Testament. So I wanna take you back in time to, this is a transformative event for the Jewish people. I mean, still today, this is a key event. So what happened in 586 BC? Babylonians, think uh, Iraqis, ruling the world. They conquer Jerusalem down here and they destroy the temple. They tear down the walls of Jerusalem. I mean, they are really ticked. They tear down the walls of Jerusalem. They destroy the temple. They literally push the stones off, you know, just destroy that temple, turn them all down. Not one stone standing on top of another kind of a thing. Then they deport everybody that matters. They leave a handful of farmers there and then they just don't care about them. They literally take people, march them off, and they settle them in Iran and Iraq. It's that general area. That's what it be, would be today. 586, Jews go into exile. Everybody thinks Jewish nation is over. And they should have been historically over. But in the Old Testament, it talks about, and there's prophecy that God said, I'm going to bring my people back. And so sure enough, and nobody saw this coming, but the Persians, think Iranians, conquer the Babylonians in 539 BC. And when Cyrus, the Persian king, this is all history and it's in the Bible. And so you can read this outside the Bible, you can read it inside the Bible, this is what happened. So in 539, Cyrus leads the Persians, overcome the Babylonians. Cyrus has a whole different way of thinking about things. He says, I have no heartburn with you Jews. You guys wanna go home, feel free. Go put your temple back together, etc. As long as you pay me taxes, I really don't need you guys around here. You're welcome to go home. And so the next year, 538 BC, a guy named Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel is a good Jew. That's not a Jewish name, but that's because he's been in Babylon. That's a nice Babylonian name. 
And so his name is Zerubbabel. That's the way it comes down to us in history. And he leads a group of Jews. Not all of them decide to go back because there's not much back there. Oh, by the way, guess what happened to their houses? Their enemies moved into their houses. They don't have houses anymore, but they go back and nobody's in Jerusalem because it's rubble. And so he leads a group of people back and they start, the first thing they do is start to put some kind of a temple back together. Not a beautiful big temple, but some kind of temple so they can worship their God. They have been faithful to God through this whole time. But the interesting thing, this is recorded in the book of Ezra. Interesting thing is when they get back there, the people all around them, and they're traditional enemies all around them. Uh, well, that hasn't changed, has it? I mean, Israel is surrounded by 440 million Muslims who hate them and want to get rid of them. And so the same was in that day. No Muslims, but people around them wanted to get rid of them, and they'd taken over their land, taken over their homes, taken over their flocks, taken over everything. And so when Zerubbabel and the people go back, the uh, people there realize Cyrus told them they could, but we're going we're gonna to hire a couple of lobbyists. Talk about politics. This is politics. A lot of politics in the Bible. So they hired some lobbyists who went to Cyrus and said, you can't trust these Jews. Oh, sure, they're just building a temple today. They'll be rebelling again. Did I tell you what happened in 586 and why the Babylonians destroyed them? So they blocked it as best they could. Well, the problem is Zerubbabel and these handful of Jewish people that go back, they have no political power. They don't have any money. They don't have any land. I mean, they're just going back on faith. So they go back to Jerusalem. This is what it looks like in that area. So they go back to Jerusalem. The Idumeans hate their guts. They invaded. Samaritans definitely hate their guts. Philistines, Lebanese. These are now Jordanians, but they were Ammonites at that time. Everybody's taken their stuff. And everybody's like, hey, no room for you, right? We do not have open borders, no immigration policy here. You guys hightail it back to Iran. And they said no, and so they do it by faith. And so Zerubbabel the leader and the Jews are praying to God. And this is a verse that is worth memorizing. And so Zechariah is a prophet. This is a book in the Old Testament. It's one of those that you don't read because it's like tacked away at the end. It's like nobody even knows what these things are about. Well, now you know what Zechariah is about. He was a prophet. He's living there, he's with these guys, and he says, here's what God said to you. This is the word of the Lord for you, Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. This, if we had a motto, this would be our motto as the church. Not by might, nor by power, not by politics, not by armies, but by my spirit. God's work God is able to accomplish his purposes in the world without us doing anything that violates being godly people. In other words, Jesus taught us how to live. And you go, yeah, but if you do that, Jesus, nice guys finish last. And it's like, no, they really don't. You do it God's way, he is capable of fulfilling what he wants to do in this world. Now, it may not be on the timetable you and I want, and it may not work out quite the way we want, but he is able. This is, was his answer to them, not by might nor by power. In other words, you don't have to have political power, you don't have to have a lot of guns, you don't even have to have a lot of people, and you don't have to have a lot of political clout because this will happen. And I'll just go ahead and tell you the end of the story. This is spoiler alert in case you were gonna go home and read this tonight, but basically they do. I mean, it's kind of amazing. And they don't do it through anybody being skillful or anybody getting in political office, they just are faithful and they rebuild the temple. And I'm gonna really fast forward now. A few hundred years later, this is in the Hasmonean era, they are an independent nation. Persians are gone, Jews are still there, temple's still there, and now all their enemies have been booted out and they control this area. And so you look at back at that and there's story after story like this. So what I wanna look at is that's a template, if you will, for how we want to engage our world. As the book of Ecclesiastes says, there's nothing new under the sun. In other words, we think, oh, this is the only time it's ever been this hostile. I think not. 
This is the only time we've ever been persecuted. I think not. I'm not trivializing our situation. I'm simply saying believers have been through this before. And how did they do it? Because they remained faithful, not by power, nor by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. So what I wanna talk about and wanna focus on is this idea of living by the spirit. This is gonna to apply to us as a church, but I really wanna get down to this applies to you and me. What then is our conduct in the world? We're not here to take sides, we're here to take over. We're here to tell the truth. We're here to proclaim the gospel. We are going to be in the middle of a lot of conflict. Jesus said, you're gonna have a nice, easy life. No, he didn't. He said, you will have trouble in this world. But take heart, hopefully this really means something to you now. He said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, be courageous, why? Because I have overcome the world. He came here to take over. And that is what we are about. And we do it by living by the Spirit, not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit. So God's plan is not political. God's plan is not military. God's plan has everything to do with who you are. Who are you? Do you live by the Spirit? You go, really? That's gonna make a difference? It always has, and it still will make a difference. Now, we are not the first. Even secular-minded political philosophers understand there is a huge relationship between government or political power and the character of the people being governed. I told you in the original session that I really like this idea, and I believe it to be true, that culture is here upstream, the character of people, the... the uh, personality, if you will, of this group of people, which we call culture. It's made up of attitudes and customs and behaviors, and we call it a culture, but it really is a reflective of who we are. Culture is here, and the stream flows down, and politics is down here. I think politics is more affected by the culture than vice versa. I understand it can go both ways, but look at this. The uh, Greeks thought, this is uh, Socrates, so what is the skilled and good orator will look at whenever he applies to people's souls, whatever speech he makes? He's talking about political speech. He will always give his attention to how justice may come to exist in the souls of his fellow citizens and injustice be gotten rid of, how self-control may come to exist in his citizens and lack of discipline be gotten rid of, how the rest of virtue may come into being and evil may depart. What's he saying? The Greeks thought that a good government tried to turn you into good people. In other words, good government was effectively here to make virtuous citizens. Aristotle, living two generations later, said the end of political expertise, the goal of political expertise is dedicated above all to making the citizens be a certain quality, good and doers of fine things. Now that sounds a little bit like Romans 13. The idea of a legitimate government is one that rewards good, punishes evil. There are certain characteristics of a legitimate government. They had a little bit of an inkling of that and they said government should promote good character in its citizens. Did that work? No, it did not work. Uh, that's just a matter of history. Is governments are not particularly, they're very good at coercing your behavior right? Government can make you behave a certain way. They're not particularly good at building virtue into the hearts of humanity. And so you really don't see that being a successful idea. So fast forward to the founding of the United States. I'm just going to give you one quote. There are tons of quotes like this because our founders saw with the Judeo-Christian worldview, a Christian way of looking at humanity, they understood that you could not change hearts from the outside in. You could not make virtue by controlling behavior. Listen to this quote, you've probably heard this before, it's a really popular one, but George Washington, Jefferson, they all said the same thing. Our country was made for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. What are they saying? We think this government will work, unlike the Greeks, which didn't work very well, 
because we need a moral and religious people. Why religious? Well, if somebody wants to ask that question, but I won't go off there right now. But the bottom line is they said, if we have virtuous people, this government will work. If you don't, no government will work. I heard stat today about, uh, it was kind of a retrospective on 20 years in Afghanistan. I'm not picking on this topic, but it's a great example. Uh, Basically, we spent over $100 billion to improve Afghanistan, improve its people, solidify its institutions, kind of a nation building, we're gonna help you guys be democratic kind of thing. Do you know what percentage of that actually went to what it was intended? Yeah, it's shocking. Like. 45%, like over $50 billion ended up where? Right there. Corruption is rampant in Afghanistan, and it has been. It is the nature of that system. They don't have, they don't have the same kind of moral way of looking at things that we do. I'm not saying they're inferior, I'm just saying most of that money lined people's pockets. It didn't go there. And so what I'm saying is, is how would we expect this kind of system? And our founders didn't. They said, this constitution will not work unless you have people that, have, uh, that are moral and religious. And again, I'm not saying they're better than someone else. They just said, this is what it's designed for. They knew the government could not make virtuous people, but they knew that virtuous people could uphold this type of Republican form of government, this, quote, democracy that we have. So people have understood for a long time that the character of people and politics are very much intertwined. So all of a sudden, God's plan doesn't sound quite so absurd, does it? That maybe the levers of power aren't always in the hands of political rulers. Maybe the ultimate levers of power exist with the culture and the nature of the people that are in that nation. And I think that's what political philosophers have found. So, Stanley Hauerwas is a theologian and he summarizes it like this and he begins to get at the heart of what we, I wanna talk about. He says, the challenge of the gospel is not the intellectual dilemma of how to make an archaic system of belief, and he doesn't mean that to be rude, what he means by that uh, is an archaic system of belief, meaning what you have in your Bible what God said 2,000 years ago, what God claims to be true about the universe, which secular-minded people think is an archaic system of belief. He said the challenge is not making that compatible with modern belief systems. I wanna pause there for a minute. There are a lot of Christians trying to make the Christian faith compatible with modern belief systems, and it is never going to work. Something is going to bend. This is not a situation where you can say, live and let live. The world does not live and let live. And this is not a situation where you can say, why don't you bend and be more Christian? It isn't working out that way, is it? What, you tend to hap what tends to happen when you want to have the gospel coexist with secular systems is the gospel gets a gun put to its head and said, you need to start letting go of some of these things. That's exactly what's happening in the progressive portion of Christianity as it interacts with our culture. He said, that's not actually what we're about. He said, the challenge of Jesus is the political dilemma, and he means political in this sense of how are we going to live and organize our lives together. The challenge of Jesus is the dilemma of how to be faithful to a strange community which we are a peculiar community of people, which is shaped by a story of how God is with us. If you're postmodernist, and everybody is at least partly postmodernist, because you've been force-fed this, everybody lives by a story. And in postmodern language, everybody has a narrative. Everybody has a belief system, a worldview that they live by. That is basically correct. And so, some of those stories are true, and some of those stories aren't. How can I tell 
Well, it's pretty obvious sometimes because things that aren't true sooner or later end up running into a brick wall. They don't work very well. Give you a simple example. The fundamental Marxist basis for the Russian Revolution, I'll just go back there because I mentioned it, but there are tons of examples of this. Fundamental Marxist basis of the Russian Revolution, think 1918, and lasted for 70 years. It was a 70-year experiment in how to get things oh so horribly wrong. Okay, I mean, hundreds of millions of people killed. And I, you, you have no idea. Well, maybe you do, because we used to teach history. I'm not sure we teach this history anymore. Unbelievable number of people killed in that system. Just horrible oppression and murder. Anyway, the basic assumption about it was is that everybody's identity can be wrapped up in their economic class. And based on that assumption of who you are and your identity, you can play out a society that's at first socialist and then communist, and that's gonna be utopia. Fast forward 70 years, that thing so totally failed. So you think of the demise under Reagan and uh, Bush, uh, the first Bush you know, of the, the Soviet empire collapsed in and of itself. Economically collapsed, sociologically collapsed, collapsed in every way possible. Why? Because 70 years earlier, they had started out living a story that wasn't true. That's going on in America today. You have people living out stories that aren't true. So what Hauerwas is saying is we are shaped by a story which happens to be true. It is what's in your Bible. It is the gospel. It is God is and God created humanity. I mean, literally the story of Christianity. And we live according to that story and that makes us a peculiar people. So how do we influence the world? We influence the world by living out that story in an authentic and true way. Another way of saying that, here's how your New Testament will say that, live by the Spirit. Live by the Spirit of God. Not by power, nor by might, but by my Spirit. So what this is, is we become a peculiar people living out a very peculiar truth in the world that will be subversive. It has to be subversive. It, it will inevitably be subversive. So let's look at the scriptures a little bit. I wanna talk about this idea of, I want you to get grounded in the scripture and I'm just gonna show you a few examples, maybe 10, of this idea of, of what, is, what are you and I about in the world? What's our fundamental relationship in the world? It is living by the spirit. And that's what I really wanna spend time talking about. What is that to us? Uh, John chapter 14, this is Jesus speaking. This isn't the only time Jesus says this, but this it happened to be close together, so I just plucked it out. Basically, what was Jesus' plan? Jesus comes, tells you the truth about the nature of reality, dies on a cross to reconcile you to God. It's confirmed with unbelievable, miraculous things, spreads like wildfire. I mean, it is such a transcendent idea. And when I say transcendent, what I mean is something that is so high that it is worth putting yourself to death over. There are little t transcendent things like most of you would die for your family. You would give up your self preservation for someone that you loved, small group. Not saying crazy Uncle Joe necessarily, but maybe your immediate family, right? That's little t transcendent. There are things in this world that I believe any of us, certain things would basically give up our self for. Big T transcendent means giving up your life for people you don't even know. Big T transcendent is finding something that is so true and so powerful the love of God and the grace of Jesus Christ, that you will not die for it, you will live for it. It's a lot harder to live for something than it is to die for something. And so that's big T transcendent idea. So what Jesus, what's Jesus' plan? I'm gonna come preach, I'm gonna die on a cross, and you guys all figure it out. Well, that turns out not to be the plan. He says this, if you love me, you'll obey what I command. 
and I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor, comforter, this is the Holy Spirit, another counselor, advisor, to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. And then a little later, Jesus replied to the disciples, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. We'll talk about this some more later. This is biblical love. My father will love him and he will come to him and we will make our home with him. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the father who sent me. I've spoken all these things in the three years I've been with you. But the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. So what is God's plan for the church? It is redemption in the blood of Christ, reconciliation to God, death of self, I now live for Christ. All these biblical ideas you've read in the New Testament. That's essentially what happened. Well, what now? Now, the Spirit takes over, the very Holy Spirit of God. Well, do I have that? Yes, you do. Ephesians 1.13, and you also, he's speaking to believers, not speaking to the general public, he's speaking to Christians in Ephesus. He said, you were included in Christ. In other words, you were part of the family, you are part of the community, as Hauerwas would say, a strange and peculiar community living out a very specific a story, a true story. He said, you were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the good news or gospel of your salvation. And when you believed, you were marked with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. A lot in that, but the fundamental thing is, when you surrender to Jesus Christ, you were marked with a seal. The Holy Spirit lives inside you as a down payment that God can do what he said he will do. It's a, it's a literally as a, a deposit guaranteeing that God will do what he says he can do. So the plan is that the Holy Spirit will guide us, will work in us, will work through us, will work in the world and you and I receive that gift of the Spirit living inside us. Now, if you're starting to squirm a little bit like, honey, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. Are we gonna speak in tongues here in a minute? Basically, what I, I really wanna talk about the Holy Spirit and Spirit-filled living. I think sometimes, as kind of straight-laced Western Protestants, we are a little afraid of, okay, what is the Holy Spirit and exactly what is he doing? And I'd like to dive into that because it, the Scripture just assumes that you are going to live in harmony with the presence of the Holy Spirit. This is the plan for the church. This is not just an emotional thing. Sometimes one of the reasons you may be a little skittish about this idea about the Spirit of God is it seems to manifest itself in the charismatic traditions. Think, you know, just kind of poster child Pentecostal things. Now, that's not necessarily being fair to Pentecostals, but I just wanna say the stereotypical idea of an, an uber emotional experience, out of control kind of a thing. That's not really the way the spirit is described. Look at what Paul says writing to Roman Christians. Those who live according to the sinful nature, that's the old self, have their minds set on the nature, on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. Important thing, a lot of important things in this verse, but number one is the Holy Spirit is not just an exuberant, out-of-body, speaking unintelligible words kind of an experience. The Holy Spirit is also part, shapes the way we think. It shapes what I like to call our affections. I like that word a little better than emotions because emotions for us is such a turbulent word. Affections means what I care about, what I care deeply about, what matters to me. Things like loyalty and faithfulness and being willing to sacrifice myself for people who are in need or, in need or hurting. When I say affections, I mean those kind of emotions. And the Holy Spirit is here to shape our emotions to be the emotions of God. 
easier to shape our minds to seek the things that God wants to seek. So I want you to think about the Holy Spirit that's within you as doing a work in all of you. This isn't like Harry Potter and the imperious curse. I kind of had to get that in to be relevant. Okay, so the imperious curse for Harry Potter fans is you get this spell put on you and then you have to do what everybody, what, what that person tells you. It totally overrules your will. So here's my point. Holy Spirit is not like the imperious curse and Harry Potter. It's not gonna make you do stuff. It's a transformative effect. Now I can see some of you going home and saying, oh, I went to church tonight. Oh, really good, was it good? Yeah, it was good, what'd they teach? They said the gospel's nothing like Harry Potter. Oh, that sounds really good. Okay, I hope you got more out of it than that. But my point is, is that the Spirit of God is working in you and there are passages, which I'm not gonna quote to you, that talk about cooperate with the Spirit. You have a part to play. This isn't self-help. You don't do this on your own power, not by power, nor by might, but by my Spirit, right? And so you don't do it, but you and I cooperate with this. We are part of what's going on. The mind of a sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the spirit is life and peace. And next week, that's what I wanna talk about. How does the spirit bring peace in our lives? The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. There's no surrender there, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature, are not, it's not possible to please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature. As Paul says earlier in Romans 6, our old self has been put to death. We now are raised to live in newness of life. You are controlled by the Spirit of God, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to Christ. I mean, this is the definition of being a Christian in the Scriptures. But if Christ is in you, your body's dead because of sin. We will die, yet your spirit is alive. We will never actually die because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, since he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. This is the whole idea of resurrection. Your body is gonna die, but we cannot die. We are eternal and we will be with Christ. But my point is, is that the spirit, I want us to get really comfortable with this idea of living in the spirit being guided by the Spirit. And that's what I wanna spend the next three lessons talking about. What is that really like in our lives? But I want you to put away any preconceptions of, okay, we're gonna be running the aisles and dancing you know, in the aisles. I mean, you can if you want to, but it's not required. It's not the Holy Spirit. That's not really a biblical idea of what the Spirit's doing inside us. It's rational, it's emotional, and it acts. It's head, heart, and hands, if you wanna think about it that way. Here are just a few uh, scriptures that talk about this. Uh, and I just put down there the references below. Because uh, I want you, and I just plucked a few out. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? This is what makes us a peculiar community. We are committed to the truth of the gospel. We have crucified our old self, taken up our cross. Now I'm quoting Luke chapter nine, Jesus and following him. And the Spirit of God empowers us to do it. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit, meaning let's cooperate with the Spirit. Let's listen to the Spirit. One of the, and we'll talk about the ways that we do that. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. This is Paul speaking to Timothy. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Uh, this is John. Those who obey his commands live in him. Those who obey the commands of Jesus live in Jesus, and he in them. And this is how we know he lives in us. And you wanna know, how do I know I'm saved? How do I know that Christ abides in me? We know it by the spirit that he gave us. The presence of the spirit in us is what is the evidence of us being in Christ. Those, uh, we know that we live in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. So, on and on and on. The idea is that we are a spirit-filled people living a spirit-led life in a very peculiar community that is here to take over. Not by power, not by might, not by ordering people around, but by the transformative power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now I realize you, know, you could 
just, just pause for a second. And I realize that's, you really have to think about this because it's such a different way of thinking. You're gonna leave here, you're gonna turn on the news and it doesn't matter if it's CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, pick your flavor, Al Jazeera, makes no difference. They're all going to, their whole job is to pull you in and make you take a side on an issue. They're gonna portray this as, oh, this is bad, and oh, look at those evil people, won't you hate them with me? The only thing that changes is which side. Now, some of you are gonna say, well, some of these things are more true than others. That's, that is correct. And yet, we are not partisan because none of them is the whole truth. We are people of the truth. This is the spirit of the truth and we will speak truth. And sometimes that means we're going to sound like a Republican. Sometimes that means we might sound like a Democrat. It's, we didn't come to take sides, we came to take over. And we represent the spirit of God in the world. So there are some pragmatic things there, but they're just pragmatic. I wanna just put a period at the end of that. That is who we are. And I think the world is not comfortable with you being that. The world needs you to take a side. One of the great experiments that's going on in our world right now, in our country right now, mainly in our country, that is going to fail. That's my prediction. Come back and tell me I'm wrong and, oh, give it three years. And I believe you'll see this fail. And it is the fundamental agenda of the BLM movement talking about an organization now, I'm not talking about an idea, but the fundamental idea of the movement is based in the story, the narrative, the worldview, that you can all be classified according to identity groups. And we've talked about this before. That's a way of looking at the world. It's not a new way of looking at the world. It's a recurring way of looking at the world. That fundamental idea is set about changing the world through means of coercion, through means of governmental or political power. It's a strategy, it's a worldview, it's living out its view of the world and its view of the world fundamentally says, I need laws, I need courts, I need things that will enforce this world view onto uh, onto us. It's very partisan. Consequently, whenever those issues, I'm really not speaking pro or con about this organization. I re the point I'm trying to make is you can't talk about that without there being sides. Does that make sense? It's not possible the way the things are framed for there not to be hostility. Does it make any sense to you? There's some stories that have to have hostility in order to exist. That's one of those stories. Identity politics, critical race theory, that's just an example, it's not the only example. White supremacy ideology is another story that has to have a bad guy, has to have an enemy or it ceases to exist. And so all I'm trying to say is, is that you should expect that the culture will demand that you be partisan. And if you don't, you must be bad, right? Now, how do I know which partisan to be? Well, because there are all these narratives out there and they all have different bad guys. And that's one of the ways that you can tell that this is not a healthy ideology. The gospel doesn't have any bad guys. The gospel stands on the love of God for every single human being and the offer of reconciliation by placing your trust in Jesus Christ. The gospel exists independent of bad guys, independent of enemies. And the point I just very passionately wanna to make to you is that's how we're called to live. We're called to tell the truth, which means there are gonna be people that hate you, but we don't have any enemies. We don't need enemies to preach the gospel, unlike some other ideologies. Hopefully that was useful, I don't get too much hate mail over it, but I really want you to think about what's happening and I want you to evaluate these ideas because they're trying to win your heart and your mind. And I just want you, here's a simple question to ask. 
If this group didn't have any enemies, would that ideology be able to remain? Well, you saw with the Soviet Union and Marxism there, no, it couldn't. The whole history of that was they had to galvanize their people. The only unifying effect of their people was the capitalist running dogs, the capitalist imperialists. And when Reagan backs off, what happens? You've got no reason to live anymore. That's a great way to look at an ideology and don't commit your life to something that has to have a bad guy or doesn't make any sense at all. Question? Do we not, as Christians, have an enemy in the personification of evil in our world? So do we as Christians have an enemy in the personification of evil? And that phrase can mean several things, but I'm gonna just make an assumption. Email me if I'm assuming wrong. I'm gonna make the assumption that what you mean by that is the work of Satan in this world. Satan hates you. Satan wants to destroy you. But you are not fighting against Satan because if you are, you're going to lose. He is more powerful than you are. And on your own, you're toast. I mean, that's not like what the Bible says, but that's a loose translation, okay? Satan is rebelling against God. He is God's enemy. You understand what I'm saying? You're a pawn. I mean, I hate to tell you this. I know you think you're the center of the universe. I do too. I'm the star in my play. In the battle, in Satan's worldview, you're a pawn to get at God. And he says, I own your souls. And God says, maybe not. And that's what Christ did on the cross as he redeemed, bought back your and my freedom from Satan. So I wanna dodge that just a little bit by saying not especially, you and I don't go about our business saying we're out there to beat Satan. I'm gonna find him and I'm gonna, that's nowhere in the Great Commission. He says, Satan's out there. He means you evil. But John says this, don't be afraid because he that is in you, who's in you? The Holy Spirit of God is greater than he that is in the world. This isn't even a contest. So no, we do not go about our reason for existence is not to be against Satan. We happen to be invading his territory and he's not gonna like it, but our reason for existence is to go into all the world, make disciples of all the nations, teaching them to obey everything Jesus commanded, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then we shall live as children, daughters and sons of Christ, by the Holy Spirit as a very peculiar community. I mean, that's, that's who we are. Good question. Um, okay, so am I understanding that we are not to participate in supporting any candidates or parties? Just be quiet, live a good life. We can't speak the truth without making enemies. That's as good a straw man, a straw man as I've ever heard. Okay, so uh, I appreciate that question because it does provide a contrast. And if that's what you heard me say, then I didn't say it very well. You are going to act in the world. You are going to tell the truth to the world. The world will react to that negatively. If history is any, is any indication, at some point, violently. That's going to happen. That's what Jesus told you was going to happen. It is such a subversive message. And so we are going to speak the truth in the world. We're gonna speak the truth with love and out of love. Why can we speak with love? Because People that don't believe in Christ are not my enemy. Are they lost? Oh, they are indeed lost. Will God dispose of them? Is there judgment? Yes, there is, but I'm not the judge. My job is to go speak the truth in love. I don't have to have enemies. So are we going to act in the world or are we gonna speak the truth? We most certainly are. Are we gonna speak the truth on issues that happen to be issues of politics? Yes, we are. Are you going to vote for candidates? I would, since you can. If you live in North Korea, no, you won't. If you live in America, you should, right? Will I identify with a candidate? Will I say I am a fill in the blank? I'm a Biden supporter, I'm a Trump supporter. No, actually I'm a Christian and uh, I may be voting this way or I may be voting that way. You know my advice, this is my opinion, vote local. I mean, vote everything, but really vote local. But the point is, is that you cannot find your identity 
You cannot align with any of those political parties, not entirely. Does that make sense? You may say, well, this party, I think a lot of these things are true and good and beautiful and noble, and I will support them. By all means, do it, but don't take on that identity. We didn't come to take sides, we came to take over. You no longer have to support a party with whom you agree 60%, 80%. You can just be a peculiar people living out the truth by the Spirit in love. So yes, you will be embroiled in the middle of it. What I'm trying to get at is helping us know how to think about it so that when you get in the fray, you don't get co-opted. Because people are gonna press you to take a side and you're gonna go, I'm just not gonna take a side, I already have a side. You know, I'm not playing your game. I'm playing a different game. And that means you will be playing a different political game. If you don't look peculiar, you're not doing it right. Does that make sense? If you can wear the hat, if you can have the bumper sticker, and you are true blue, fill in the blank, I really don't care what party, then we're not playing the game right because we're playing somebody else's game. So we will act in the world. I'm trying to give us the idea that don't get sucked into thinking you need to play that game. You're going, you have a game, you have a very important game to play in the world, but it's not the game that the rest of the world is playing. So what should a Christian do politically when the government tries to make Christianity illegal? What should Christians do when the government tries to make Christianity illegal? This is actually not a hard question because it's already happened countless times in history and in the world today. And so this is gonna sound glib and I'm really, I mean, I'm not trying to sound glib. What will you do differently if they make it illegal? Nothing. You won't do anything differently. I mean, you may not come to this building on Sunday just to make it easy to arrest you, but my point is, will you still pray? Yes. Will you still believe the truth? Yes. Will you still share your faith? Yes. Will you still help people? Uh, will you still do the Sermon on the Mount? Yes, you will. Will you likely get arrested? Entirely possible. Will you get killed? Happened before, happening today in other places in the world. I mean, I'm not here to sugarcoat this for you, but if the government makes Christianity illegal, well, welcome to China, Korea, Indonesia, ancient Rome. I mean, again, I'm not trying to be glib. I'm just saying, guys, this, this has happened. We have great examples of that. Should Christians not work politically to prevent that from happening? So this, I'm gonna expand this question just a little bit. Should Christians be involved in our political system in order to influence it for things that move in a direction toward God? I mean, I think, I think that's fair to that question, but I, I wanna expand it just a little bit. I think so, because you can in America. If you were in China, I would say, no, because you can't. But here you can, in which case, I think that there are gonna be people that feel called and say, I believe that I can live out the gospel in the world by showing people, this, this does sound a little bit trite, but I don't mean it to. What does Jesus look like if Jesus were in the House of Representatives, in the Senate, in the Oklahoma Senate, uh, on the city council? What would that look like? Well, you're gonna be peculiar, you're gonna vote a little different than everybody else at times, that kind of thing. So no, I do think that's a good thing. I just think don't ever forget, that's not your game. You're, you're coming to the game table, but you're gonna move the pieces in a little different direction. But I think that's a good thing. But don't, and here's where I think this questioner brings up a really good point. Don't slip into putting your hope in political processes. It will break your heart sooner or later. Our our goals are not gonna be accomplished by governments. Can governments be good governments and others be bad? Yes, but even in a good government, our mission will not be accomplished by a government. So let's not try to delegate that power. All you have to answer for to God is you, and were you faithful? You don't have to answer, why'd you guys not shape America up? What was up with that 2016 election? You know, we don't have to answer those questions. We have to answer the question, was I faithful with what I was given? 
Okay. Think about this passage. And then in our next lesson, what I wanna get down to is what does that look like day to day? What does it look like? Do I hear voices with the Spirit? Uh, do I get nudges with the Spirit? What does it look like to live in a manner that's very consistent with the Spirit? What does it look like to live in the power of the Spirit? And what I wanna do is I wanna go to the book of Acts. We're just gonna go to the Bible and say, well, what did they do? You know, Jesus is resurrected. You know, all of the disciples, tens of thousands of early Christians, how did they live by the Spirit? So we're gonna dive into the book of Acts and look at some real specific examples that I think we can do the same thing today, okay? So we're gonna talk about living by the Spirit. I know that what we're talking about is a little bit different way of thinking and you may have some cognitive resistance and that's good. I want you to think about these things, but I wanna think biblically about these things. And let's remember that it, it's not by our might, it's not by our power, it's by the Spirit of God that everything good is gonna happen, okay? Next week, we're gonna go back to the book of Acts, so everybody dress, period, okay? <laughs> I'll see you next time.